Contra is friction. Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. Welcome to Contra, the podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. This show is about the politics of accessible and critical design, broadly conceived, and how accessibility can be more than just functional or assistive. It can also be conceptual, artful, and world-changing. I'm your host, Amy Hamrai. I'm a professor at Vanderbilt University, a designer and design researcher, and the director of the Critical Design Lab, a multi-institution collaborative focused on disability, technology, and critical theory. Members of the lab collaborate on a number of projects focused on hacking ableism, speaking back to inaccessible public infrastructures, and redesigning the methods of participatory design, all using a disability culture framework. This podcast provides a window into the kinds of discussions that we have within the lab, as well as the conversations that we're hoping to put into motion. So in coming episodes, you'll also hear from myself and the other designers and researchers in the lab, and we encourage you to get in touch with us via our website, www.mapping-access.com, or on Twitter at CriticalDesignL. In Episode 7, Critical Design Lab contributor Cassandra Hartblay and I speak to Marcel Laflamme about how the concept of open access publishing relates to accessibility. This episode is the second in a two-part series about critical design and accessibility within or adjacent to academia. In this episode, we talk about how design tensions and opportunities arise in relation to accessibility within two sets of practices. The first is publishing platforms, in this case, the new website for the journal Cultural Anthropology. The second is conference planning, particularly with a new move toward conferences happening in online spaces. Here's our interview with Marcel. We're here with Marcel Laflamme and Cassandra Hartblay for today's episode. My name is Cassandra Hartblay. I'm an assistant professor in health studies and anthropology at the University of Toronto, Scarborough. And I'm also a contributor to the Critical Design Lab and the Contra podcast. My name is Marcel Laflamme. I am currently a visiting scholar in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Washington. And I also serve as the managing editor for the open access journal, Cultural Anthropology. So it's a scholarly journal that's published by the Society for Cultural Anthropology, which is part of a a larger society, the American Anthropological Association. Awesome. I'll just give a little overview of why we thought of you, Marcel, for this podcast. So this is the first joint interview that Amy and I are recording for Contra. And Contra is a podcast about design, disability, and technoscience. And we're especially interested in what Amy calls unfinished technoscience, which is this sort of way of being less positivist about the answers or prescriptive paths forward. And instead, we're really seeking with the podcast to document processes and design processes as they unfurl. And so we think that what CA is doing as an academic journal is important. And we wanted to reach out to you and kind of capture or document your thinking about access in a moment that seems like it's sort of 
a design moment uh, when you're actually working out new processes. So in part, we see this as an advocacy plug for access in a couple different senses of the word, and then also as an opportunity to document technology change as it happens. So I think in this episode, something that I'm really interested in, and I've been seeking to contribute to our conversations is the sort of ethnographic movement to chart the different ways that the word access gets used in different communities. And so open access is one, and then the sort of disability access frame is another. And so I'm really interested in the kind of overlaps and cleavages that we might find there. Absolutely. Maybe I'll, I'll kind of walk back chronologically a little bit, because I think that, that our thinking about building accessibility into the kind of new iteration of the cultural anthropology website and publishing platform. That's sort of the work that, that I'm, I'm really engaged in on a day-to-day -day basis right now. But I mean, to kind of go back to this past spring, the Society for Cultural Anthropology decided to, rather than doing a kind of in-person conference, a, a biennial conference that we've run for a long time, the idea was to try to, to run a, a virtual conference, so to do a sort of an online event for the first time. And, you know, there were, there were, I was involved with that and on Pandya and our conference chair, you know, we sort of assembled a team to, to, to start to think through how to do that. And so, you know, I want to say it was December of 2017, we sort of sent out our call for submissions, right? And sort of opened the door and said, you know, we were, we're looking for kind of pre-recorded video presentations from scholars. And, you know, I think what was behind the, the idea of a virtual conference was access. So the ways in which um, bringing folks together to one city for, for a conference comes along with all kinds of challenges. So it's expensive to, to fly in, especially for, for early career and precarious scholars. It chews up a lot of carbon, right? It's a, there's a real sort of environmental impact to doing that. And I think we're mindful that given the current political environment in the United States, it's become more and more difficult from scholars from certain countries to get visas, to be able to sort of come to conferences in the United States. So, you know, I think there was an access, there was a spirit of access, I think, behind this, this desire to explore this online format in parallel with the kind of, you know, potential for multimedia. And that's something that cultural incorporating embedded media into our research articles, you know, kind of launched that back in 2016. So, you know, in, in some ways, those, those two strands of sort of looking at the possibility of, of multimedia storytelling and, and sort of form and also extending access in new ways. So we send out this, this, you know, call for submissions and, you know, feel like we've really got our ducks in a row and we've, you know, put together this little toolkit that might help folks record a, a, a video presentation if they haven't done this before. And I remember that there was a lot of excitement and kind of fanfare around it. There was sort of the sense that like, we're like breaking new ground and we're doing something that hasn't really been done before. And we think we're going to do something really good that kind of could potentially level the playing field in terms of unequal access to these spaces of intellectual exchange for scholars coming from, you know, the global south or the east or various places. That's it. Yeah. I mean, I do think it was a swing for the fence kind of thing to say, like, you know, let's let's reimagine what the academic gathering might look like sort of going forward. And so, you know, we, we send out this call and we're starting to get some interest from various folks. But, you know, at the same time, we're we're starting to hear from folks, I think, particularly in the kind of disability studies community, sort of saying, 
you know, this event sounds great, but it strikes us that there's, there's not much, if any, attention paid to making the event accessible, right? And, and that the, the version of access that talked about borders and that talked about money and plane tickets, I mean, that's great, but it's interesting, as you said, you know, in your, in your introduction, that a version of accessibility sort of fell out or was sort of left unmarked, right? And, and the assumption was that um, as long as it's on the internet, it is accessible. Right. And we've, we've done it. The barriers to entry had been taken care of. I think of that again, ethnographically as, as a really interesting moment of critique of sort of intervention among colleagues and, and one that I think was really generative for us kind of, you know, to, to take that moment that was, you know, it was constructive, but I think there was some, some frustration too. And I think it, it indexed kind of a longer history that, you know, that, that disability scholars have had about trying to make spaces of, of academic sociality accessible, right? That went back to sort of conversations that have been happening for a long time that, that I'm sure both of you have been involved with in sort of encouraging folks who convene spaces like this to sort of, yeah, to include folks with disabilities in the mix when designing those spaces in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And to get specific about it, I remember that the issue that was coming up around the displacements conference in particular was that the CFP came out and it said, you know, there are going to be videos. And then for scholars who have hearing impairment or are ASL users or for whom audio tracks where they can't see someone's face and lips, uh, you know, are quite inaccessible. uh, It really just kind of flagged like, hey, we're making this space that's uniquely accessible, but we haven't considered or thought about um, how people who don't hear are going to participate. And so the kind of intervention and and conversations that happened was how can we open up the conference committee to bring in people who are going to like make sure that those those questions are included in the conversation going forward. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, to be like thinking of that moment of kind of comradely critique is sort of how we were talking about it within the organizing committee, right? And what do you do in a moment where where something has been flagged for you, right? Where an inclusion or a form of, of a mission of marginalization has happened. Do you ignore it? Do you sort of push back and say, well, you just don't understand the brilliance of our plan? And I think that that was a really interesting moment. I think I would say almost immediately snapped into focus, like, gosh, like we're this, we're not, we're not proud of the fact that this wasn't on our radar. But now that it is, let's figure out how to, you know, convene a network of folks who can help us to think about this more deeply. Yeah. And I think that it also raised a really interesting set of questions around labor, because on the one hand, I think what you guys ended up doing was going back and saying, hey, like, how do we get some of these people who are thinking about these things, who have a lot of expertise in the room or the virtual room, right, and the conversation and really participating in the design of how this conference is going to function and what what the platform is going to look like on the web and what the requirements for presentations to make them accessible. The disability anthro community is sort of saying nothing about us without us is the rallying cry of the disability rights movement. Like, let's get people in the room. At the same time, uh, the same five scholars have been doing so much work around access uh, for so many years and are pretty burnt out that at the same time, there's kind of there's this um, activism burnout 
kind of problem where it's like, if everybody who has been fighting for access in the discipline for so long is always the one that gets called on. And so that's kind of where people like my generation came in of anthropologists who are working on disability and therefore kind of part of the conversations that senior scholars have been doing this for longer have have been having and sort of saying, okay, how much of this can we take on as allies or as junior scholars take that burden and move the conversation forward with with our generation? Um, And it's kind of a cool opportunity. I remember thinking that when that whole displacements thing was happening, because it really did feel like, cool, we're creating a new platform that is going to be the foundation for like the next generation of scholarship to really uh, participate in these exchanges. And so what if from the get-go, it it really wraps accessibility, including disability access into the design? Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up the sort of labor sort of element of it. And maybe I'll say two things about that. So one thing we were able to do was to bring on uh, an access advisor sort of onto the organizing committee for the conference. So Tyler Zwani just did such a terrific job you know, created uh, an addition to our participant toolkit about creating an accessible presentation. And, you know, what I love about that, that piece of writing is that it's simultaneously a kind of practical, technical intervention and a real intellectual intervention at the same time. So, you know, it talks about image description it talks about practices of making different kinds of media accessible. But the framing that Tyler uses is, is around language like hospitality, conviviality. So he talks about about accessibility as an art of living together. And, you know, it's so beautiful. And and I think it really, for for some of us who were involved in the conference and, you know, for whom admittedly these issues weren't on our radar, it really reframed it for us, I think, in a way that was about, this is is consistent with our values. This is consistent with with the, the sorts of spaces that we're trying to convene. And so what I'll say about the conference, too, is that I don't think that the finished product was to go back to this idea of unfinishedness. I wouldn't call it the, like, platinum standard of accessibility either. So we ended up with kind of a a live stream that was not captioned in the final production, and there were sort of technical reasons for that, but then sort of individual video presentations you know, an exciting thing I would say is that of the hundred and some presentations that we ultimately had, close to 80% of them did end up being captioned, each of them by the scholars who had had submitted the presentations, right? It wasn't outsourced to anyone else. And I mean, that's exciting to me. I, and I think about that maybe in the context of something like responsibilization. Often we use that word in kind of a negative way to talk about the withdrawal of the state and services that were once provided now being sort of pushed out into a market. But I mean, I think there's a kind of responsabilization that says, if you are participating in an event like this or any sort of event, part of your, part of the call, part of what you are asked to do is to make sure that your work is accessible and that folks can engage with it. To me, that 80% figure is a really heartening one and and an exciting one. Because I think for many of those folks, it was the first time they had been asked to do something specific, something concrete, in order to make this sort of intellectual intervention that they were making accessible. And and even if they spent all of 15 minutes or, you know, half an hour sort of creating these captions using an online tool, like, that's an interesting kind of pedagogical moment for me. 
how is this next half hour that I'm going to spend a form of intellectual work, a form of, yeah, of a, a commitment to making my work public. Yeah, that's really great. And I think one of the things that was nice about it also is in some of the materials, there's sort of this discussion of the ways that captioning benefits not only this marked category of people who are hard of hearing, but lots of people who maybe speak a different dialect of English or are English is not their first language or are maybe listening with the sound off or watching with the sound off because they're on public transit or they're in, an, in a shared office space or something like that. So yeah, I think you get this uh, clear through line from that to the kind of dialogic interaction that we hope to have in scholarly spaces. Because I think the sort of standard ableist view of disability is that these are that disability means a defect or a lack and that people with disabilities need to be helped. But a sort of more enlightened view is that people with disabilities have a particular kind of expertise and social knowledge as well as scholarly expertise. And so if you're not making your scholarship accessible, you're closing yourself off to that kind of dialogic interaction that you might get feedback or really interesting comments from scholars all around the globe who wouldn't feel invited to be a part of your presentation otherwise. So I think that that's an ethic that got really explicitly underlined by the video captioning problem, but which also holds true for other conference spaces, right? So even the sort of traditional conference space where you're in the room, and I've been to so many roundtables where everyone gives up on using the mic because it's corded. And then I've seen senior scholars who aren't out as having lost hearing just walk out of the room because they give up. They're like, I can't hear anything. I'm leaving. And then, you know, how many people in the room miss out on having that senior scholar hear their comment and know what they're working on. So I think, you know, we all have something to learn from these technological moments of design and redesign, even if even reflecting back to the quote unquote, more traditional model. Very much so. I mean, I'll just say that's something that I think in starting to engage with Amy's work, but I've, that um, the way in which that kind of problematic of universal design gets framed is so interesting, right? So one argument that you can make, as I understand it, is that in designing for accessibility, you're also designing for sort of other publics and there are these kind of dual use effects that sort of emerge. And Amy, my, my sense from, from, from your book and, and other writings is, is that is attention in and of itself in the disability community to sort of say, like, how do we, to what extent is there, a, is universal design sort of a strategic way of sort of advancing a set of, of aims? And are there ways in which universal, universal design also, I don't know, lets folks off the hook for designing for specific kinds of disabilities and naming the fact that that's the work in which they're engaged. And can you say a little bit about that? I think you're, you're referring to the way that universal design sometimes gets used to either deprioritize disability design to say it should just be good if we design for everyone, but not specifying who that everyone is versus the prevailing focus, which is on mobility and to a lesser extent, kind of sensory and other types of disabilities. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah. Did you see that tension come up in the work that you were doing around designing the conference or the journal? I did. Yeah. I mean, I think that 
you know, maybe to, to kind of extend it forward into kind of the work we're doing on the journal now, one thing I've been learning in sort of starting to immerse myself in this kind of world of, of inclusive publishing is kind of the, the language that folks will use. There's a, you know, standards around format and, and the way in which the PDF, which a lot of academics sort of take to be the kind of, yeah, I mean, in a sense, like your article doesn't exist until there's a PDF for it. Right. It's, it's just sort of a, a manuscript, right. Until we're sort of, it's sort of served up to us as this beautiful kind of book-like, you know, form. But I mean, in, in, in working on the sound and vision project where we were embedding media objects and research articles for the first time, a thing that, that we learned there is that the, the PDF, there are limitations around the PDF precisely because it is this, you know, it, 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 it gives you a snapshot of a, of a text. And even if the, the characters can be recognized, there are ways in which the PDF really is not a very accessibility friendly as the finished form and as the kind of, um, yeah, the instantiation of an article in, in all of its, uh, yeah, in its finishedness is, you know, is, is to make certain kinds of things not possible. So, you know, a thing that we learned in working on Sound and Vision was that to embed media in, in a PDF is very difficult. It'll work on some devices and not on others. And so the, the really the standard that in electronic book publishing that has emerged, but that is sort of working its way over into, into the article world too, is, is the EPUB. So, you know, EPUBs have the advantage of being reflowable, right? So, I mean, they're, they're, they're sort of a universal design case for the EPUB too right? That there are ways in which an EPUB can benefit you. You can embed media files in it. And once an, once an EPUB is downloaded, you have the files in hand, even if you're somewhere that doesn't have internet connectivity, you know, you can, you can play them back. But in, in an inclusive publishing context, there's a specific benefit to the EPUB in terms of its compatibility with things like screen readers. So yeah, I mean, I think that's a place where right now cultural anthropology just provides EPUBs for these sound and vision articles. So I mean, if we're publishing an article with embedded media and we sort of take the extra step to generate an EPUB, but for everything else right now, we're sort of still on, on PDF. So one piece of this kind of move into inclusive publishing for us is to, to make a commitment that starting in 2019, all of our published journal content will be available in EPUB form. And we're working with the folks at the Institute for Human-Centered Design in Boston to, to validate the EPUBs that, that we're producing, right? And to say that, how do we, right? How do we make sure that those EPUBs do what we want them to do? And yeah, I mean, I just, I, that, that process for us, I think has been interesting to see how a format that we, that we tiptoed into for one set of reasons, we're now finding that it, that, it, that it does align with this sort of movement to inclusive publishing that we're trying to make. That's awesome. And Marcel, I, I realized I skipped a couple of questions at the beginning, but maybe it makes sense to go back to them now, which is, could you talk a little bit about your work for uh, the Call Anth Journal and like how that fits together? And I think people in anthropology versus others out there, we've been talking a lot recently about the structure of journals and how different, like the design of the kind of hierarchical or parallel bodies that bring journals into being is significant. So maybe just telling us a little bit about how the journal functions and what your role is within it would be really useful here. And then also, and this is a whole separate question, but I'm really curious about 
what open access means to you, you know, sort of in general. Absolutely. So, you know, I think, as I said at the beginning, the, I mean, the journal of cultural anthropology is published by a section of this larger American Anthropological Association. And there are, there are, are good and bad things that, that come along with that, that, you know, we, there are ways in which the, the infrastructure that this larger scholarly society has, has created and maintained. So things like processing membership I mean, is something that, that we can rely on them to do, but it also constrains us in some ways. And it, it means that our governance process, you know, is nested within this larger organization that, you know, that since 2008 has had a, a publishing partnership or the, is the language they use, although I might not, with a corporate publisher, Wiley. And so, I mean, for, for the American Anthropological Association's journal portfolio of 22 journals, they are largely published on a subscription basis, which means that if you are a member of the American Anthropological Association, or if you are affiliated with an institution that uh, subscribes to the, the suite of journals that the AAA publishes, you can read the journals. If one of those two conditions isn't met, you know, it, there's also sort of a philanthropic access arrangement that, that applies to, to certain uh, countries in the developing world, although not many of the ones in which our readers are, like India. You know, if those conditions are met, you can read the content and otherwise you can't, right? So, I mean, it really functions on a model of scarcity that some people can read and some people can't. And the way that societies like the AAA make sure that publication revenue keeps coming in is to, is to make that cut, right? And to say that some folks can read and some folks can't. So that coercive move, yeah, is, is, is about sort of generating the revenues to kind of keep the society going. And I'd say within anthropology for, you know, I mean, going back really to the, you know, to the early 2000s, there was an interest uh, among scholars in open access in the sort of scarcity of the kind of material object isn't the, the barrier, might it not be possible to open up access to the scholarly record and yeah, to, to sort of get away from that, from that subscription model in which some folks can read and some folks can't. And so, you know, the, the culmination of really like a decade of activism within the AAA came in 2014 when cultural anthropology became the first journal within this broader portfolio to go open access, right? So the AAA and, and its publishing partner, Wiley, agreed on a kind of trial basis or sort of, you know, as an experiment was the language that was being used to allow one title to go open access. And microcultural anthropology was the only one kind of bold enough or uh, foolhardy enough, depending on the day, to step forward and to say, yes, that you know, we, we want to take that step. So yeah, I mean, 2014 was really the kind of rebirth of the journal in some ways, um, not only as an open access journal, but as a self-published journal. And this is a distinction that my predecessor, um, Tim Elfenbein, who was the managing editor at the time of the open access transition, made. So when a journal goes open access, it doesn't, it doesn't stop having a publisher, right? It's just that the responsibility for who does those publishing activities, who tends to that, that infrastructure, 
shifts potentially. And so for us, it meant that a lot of the, the functions of publishing, of typesetting and pushing out metadata to indexers, I mean, the kind of brass tacks of online publishing were things that once upon a time, we had a, a, a commercial publisher take care of that for us. And so 2014 was really a moment where to go back to responsabilization, right? Where, where we became responsible for doing that ourselves. So, I mean, my role as managing editor at the journal is, is really kind of overseeing that production process, right? And, and, you know, in, in 20 hours a week, right? I mean, it's a halftime position is, is, is how it's budgeted. We're trying to recreate a lot of the functions that this big established publisher that has hundreds of titles under it can, can do, right? So, I mean, that's a, that's an ambitious undertaking and, and one that, yeah, I mean, I think it's given us a lot of freedom to be able to sort of try new things, to sort of embed media at a point when Wiley couldn't deliver that to the rest of the AAA portfolio. And because we had our own platform, we were able to do that. But conversely, there are sort of maintenance and infrastructure sort of entailments there that, that we've signed on for and that, that as managing editor, I don't do it all myself. I have a team of vendors and contractors who I work with, but I guess I'm the sort of point person to make sure that all of those things come about. That's really interesting. I mean, I'm not someone who knows a lot about the history of open access as a concept, but it struck me as you were talking to sort of think about the ways in which infrastructures stay with us after technologies have become less or have moved forward. So even the idea of a subscription model makes a lot of sense when you're printing physical journals and mailing them around the world, because it's literally who wants me to mail them a copy of this uh, thing that I just made, this object. But then for digital subscriptions, it's a very different kind of process of figuring out what needs to go out and how does it get out and you know the idea of indexing that you were just talking about I think that's something that from the side of someone who writes for academic journals but doesn't necessarily know the publishing details is totally opaque to me so yeah yeah I'll just say that like that it's interesting to think about right the the kind of barriers that actually get built in order to make sure that content doesn't move freely I don't want to embrace a kind of information wants to be free kind of, you know, cyber libertarian perspective here, because I think um, scholars like Kim Kristen have written really beautifully about the ways in which for communities to make decisions about how content travels uh, is important. And especially in kind of indigenous and colonial contexts to say that all knowledge ought to flow freely and without limitations. Um, I actually think that, that anthropology is and Francis have been able to sort of offer a powerful critique um, of that of that ideology, which is in many ways kind of a yeah a very sort of market driven one. But I mean, it's fascinating to think about libraries. So I, I think I mentioned to you folks that before I went to graduate school for, for anthropology, I, I was a librarian. So I got a, a master's degree in library science from Simmons College in Boston. I ran a community college library for a few years. And to think about the kind of service ethos that libraries have and that in general libraries are about making materials available. If it didn't already exist today, I think to, to propose it would be, you would be, you would be seen as a revolutionary, right? The idea that you would sort of challenge the idea that everyone needs to own every book themselves, but instead that this community institution could, could provide that and that we would use tax revenue to sort of 
to, to do that. So, you know, if libraries have this sort of access ethos at their core, it's fascinating how in the digital publishing era, libraries have been responsibleized to, to deny access, right? So if you think about, if you're an academic and you sign into your sort of institution because you wanna read a journal, right? And you'll be asked to sort of type in your, your credentials, right? Has been offloaded to libraries. It's fascinating, right? That, that the work of making sure that content is not accessible and that that coercive cut between who can read and can't read is maintained. What's, what's I think deeply ironic to me is that it's not the publishers who are even doing that work. It's libraries that have been tasked with making sure that the right people can read and that the wrong people can't. So, you know, again, from a design perspective, I mean, libraries spend time and money on this, right? Sort of troubleshooting these authentication products. And, you know, everyone's had the experience where it says in the catalog that you have access to the journal, but then you don't. And then there's this back and forth. So libraries are actually starting to sort of, to, to try to, to produce metrics for this and to say, like, what does it cost the library to deny access in this way? And how do, we, how do we put a number on that by way of being able to understand how the sort of current regime of publishing, what are, what are the effects of that on libraries? What are the ways in which that gets, gets budgeted into sort of operational costs? Wow, that's really fascinating. I hadn't thought about it from that point of view before at all. And I think that kind of brings us to this question that we were chatting about before we um, started recording, which is something we've all been thinking about in terms of how academics and the work of doing scholarship and doing higher ed, uh, a lot of times design work. And Amy, maybe you want to say something about that also, because I think it's something you've thought about a lot. Um, well, I think, Marcel, you've given us so many examples to think with. The space of the library, the space of the conference, the practice of sharing information or setting boundaries around information, kind of gatekeeping information. All of these are designed sites in the same way that a building is a design site. Someone made a decision to produce them to function in a particular way. And I wonder if you could just say a little bit about whether you think about your work as design work. And if not before, after this conversation, what considerations might you have about uh, things designers think about, like investigating a problem, building a prototype, testing a prototype, interacting with users, anticipating users, all of these things that we don't typically think about as the normal means of academic practice, but they're clearly what we've been talking about this whole time. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah. Um, so I, mean, I think that in part because, so certainly since this move toward self-publishing for the journal, but even before that, and to go back sort of 10 years to cultural anthropology is one of the first journals to have its own sort of freestanding website separate from the journal. I should say one of the first ones within the American Anthropological Association. And so, you know, even 10 years ago, there were, you know, the, the editors of the journal and graduate students who were working with them, I would say were actively sort of thinking about designing spaces for sort of interaction, ways that we could extend the reach of an article 
and provide different footholds or sort of um, points of access into them. So doing things like author interviews, providing you know supplemental content uh, that, that didn't make it into the article, but that maybe could sort of live on a, on a, on a site. So yeah, I, mean, I think that that design ethos is one that has been within the Society for Cultural Anthropology as a publishing organization for some time. And, but I, I do think it's different than the kind of vendor client model that we often, that, that I think a lot of societies have to their publishers, right? Where the model that says infrastructure is the publisher's responsibility, right? And that's the thing that they're bringing to the table, right? We supply the content, they do the infrastructure. That's the sort of, that's the, the, the division. And I, I think for going on a decade now, Society for Cultural Anthropology has, you know, in, in, in building infrastructure too, and, and, you know, making choices again about to what extent is it important that we own all of this? To what extent can we sort of use hosted services and the expertise of others? Yeah, or, or is it necessary that all of this be in-house, right? So the, the current iteration of the cultural anthropology website is a is a radically custom setup right we are the only publication in the world that runs on it and we we have a freelance developer who who sort of makes makes changes to it for us so and i just want to add here um for people who don't use the call anth website callanth.org um you guys have done a phenomenal job of having website only content that is still scholarly so that very often if you have like a conference or if you have a set of ideas that you want to get on the web and available within a year you can do an edited series and send it to Marcel and and then the team of social media folks will pump it out there and it will be on Facebook and it will be on Twitter and repeatedly tweet it out so it's got this really great kind of I think you guys have designed a really nice infrastructure in terms of generating ongoing content that is not only the classical academic journal content, but also academic content that is really customized to how people use the internet. And so that's really thoughtful in terms of imagining your users, right? Because how many of us are taking a break from writing and clicking through whatever social media site and sort of seeing what's going on in the discipline so that it becomes, social media use becomes quote unquote work also in the sense of networking and keeping your finger on the pulse, but still kind of taking a step back from your own research or teaching uh, practices. So yeah, I feel like you've done a really nice job of designing the site to um, hit those kind of contemporary impulses. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, right. I think that the, I think the acknowledgement that what scholarly publishing looks like is changing and that the sort of, you know, eight to 10,000 word research article is only one form that people are working in today and want to work in today. So, you know, we're at the point where our short form web content drives more traffic to the cultural anthropology website than the long form peer reviewed journal articles. And, you know, that's a little deceptive. There are sort of other points of access to the long form content too, but absolutely. I think there's, there's a way that, you know, that, that there is an appetite for these new forms. And, you know, to be honest, it's been, it's been a bit frustrating to work within the strictures of the larger association in that way. So, you know, some of the accessibility work that we 
were hoping to do as part of the, the website redesign. There were some grant funds that we were hoping to draw down that had been awarded to us by this publishing futures committee within the, the AAA. But when we came to them earlier this summer and, and said, you know, this is what we'd like to draw down the funds to do, they, that request was not approved. And it's interesting, and I think kind of revealing the reasons why, right? And I think it goes to questions about sort of whose job accessibility is, right? So there were sort of two parts to the answer. So one part was there is no problem with accessibility, right? So the idea was that because most other section websites are WordPress sites, right? Which WordPress has a pretty good track record, actually, of working with folks with concerns around accessibility, and because they're centrally hosted, there's no problem. All of the sites, except yours, are already accessible, right? So there's no, there's no need to, to sort of devote resources to this. And, you know, of course, you can use a kind of online accessibility checker and pretty quickly determine that that's not, in fact, the case, right? That if disability media scholars have helped us understand that access is, it's not a one-time fix, right? But it's part of this, this ongoing labor of tagging images and providing image descriptions that there is no problem argument really sort of didn't stand up but i mean the other move which i think goes to your point about sort of the changing nature of content the the committee sort of said to us well this this isn't our problem anyway right that that we oversee journals and journals are the sort of serious form of academic publishing that we're concerned about and so this other stuff, this kind of web content, whatever it is that you folks are up to, it's all well and good, but it's really not the serious business of, of publishing with which we're, we're concerning ourselves. And so, you know, that strikes me as an interesting way of rejecting an engagement with accessibility, right? So one is to say there is no problem. And then one is to say it's not our problem. And it might be someone else's problem, right? But, but it isn't ours. I think the Society for Culture and Anthropology has sort of said, well, you know, it, it is our problem, right? And, and we're, we're choosing to take this on with or without this, this particular, you know, form of support. So, you know, the society is sort of absorbing the cost of kind of, we have sort of a nonprofit fundraising arm, Friends of Cultural Anthropology, that's actually launching a Kickstarter campaign this fall to try to sort of crowdfund the remainder of the work. But yeah, and I think that, that, locating the resources to do this kind of work itself produces these kind of diagnostic moments, right? Where, where you can sort of see institutional logics at work in terms of, of yeah, of, of what's prioritized and what isn't. Well, that's so fascinating and um, so familiar at the same time with other places in academic contexts where kind of responsibility gets shifted or denied around accessibility. And you may be interested, there's great work from David Mitchell and Sharon Snyder, where they, uh, they were some of the first folks to make the Modern Language Association meeting accessible. So they um, went into their own archives from that meeting 20 years ago. And found all the documents where they've been told more or less the same things by the MLA and then presented them kind of in a contemporary context in which access was still being denied to say, you know, you've been saying this isn't a problem for 20 years and yet it continues to be a way that institutions kind of align themselves against responsibility for accessibility. 
And it's so interesting, too, that a professional organization that has a committee on publishing futures, the the kind of like design considerations about that future are being strategically shaped in this way. So it seems like there's so much there to think with and, and to try to maybe think about alternative models for thinking about publishing futures, too, that cut across. I've, I haven't really thought too much about this, but I know that the folks who work in access web accessibility specifically are thinking so much about what the future of digital content should be like and how to set the bottom line standard for that as accessible. And there's quite a bit more universal design work in that world that actually than in architecture or a field like that. So it's so interesting to hear from you about how the non-implementation of these things is taking shape, even while you are making so much effort to make things accessible and to read disability theory and to um, try to approach these design processes based on experiences that you've had with other accessibility projects, um, like we talked about earlier. So I'm really grateful for you kind of like cracking open the the black box, as it were, like, um, of all of this, because I think so many of us just have no idea what's happening behind the scenes of our publications getting produced. And it's clearly an area that is ripe for activism. Too. Definitely. I mean, I, I, I think it's a space where bringing, bringing sort of disability studies notions of access to bear on, on, on how we think about open access, it's really productive. And, and for me, it's not about sort of substituting one for the other, right? That I think there, there are differences that are important to mark. And in some ways, you know, I'm, I'm actually a bit of a prescriptivist about what open access means, what that term means, because I think there are ways that, that it's fudged, right? And that the American Anthropological Association has a journal called Open Anthropology, but what that journal does, and I mean, the folks who run it are great, but I mean, it, it ungates articles for 12 months and then it gates them again at the end. So, I mean, one, so it's true that they're free to read for that, for that period. But if one thing that open access has come to mean is that content is free to read indefinitely, right? Or for the duration of the, of the copyright, you know, I mean, right. I think that there, there's value in sort of holding the line on what open access refers to and what it indexes to sort of avoid its co-optation in some of these other forms. I'd say colleagues of mine, you know, Anand Pandyan, who I worked with uh, on, on, the, on the conference, you know, wrote a piece earlier this summer that I think does something different and that really sort of asks, all right, well, you know, if we open up what we mean by open and what we mean by access, how do we get to a more sort of capacious understanding of the different things that we might want publications to do. And, you know, I, I admire that argument. I think mine, mine might say that open access is only one horizon of aspiration, right, for scholarly publishing. And so it matters to me that we sort of use this kind of stringent definition and talk about that it's free to read, that it comes along with rights for reuse in a digital environment. Anyway, I think that that definition has served us well in certain respects, and I would like to see those aims realized. But it's more and more clear to me that, I mean, open access is in some ways a fairly conservative project, right? Because it's about taking an existing publishing system and publishing firms, and, but, but what it, it doesn't do a host of other things. 
questions, right? It doesn't ask how might those forms change? It doesn't ask, did, did those systems really work for people in the first place? And so, yeah, I, I'm inclined to think about open access as one, one star in this constellation of different, yeah, different forms of aspiration that we might have. And I think inclusive publishing is sort of the language I've come to use to, to sort of, you know, to think about a parallel and related effort, right, that, that also is in tension with and sort of reveals like productive contradictions between these different ways of thinking about accents. Yeah, that's so helpful. Thank you. I think that might be a great place for us to conclude and give our audience uh, some things to think about. And so thank you so much, Marcel, for being here. We've really enjoyed this conversation. And, um, and we look forward to seeing how all of these things develop going forward. Um, and so yeah, thank you. Very much so. Thanks for having me on. Hi, Contra listeners. Cass here. The interview that you just heard was recorded in August 2018. And you might be interested to know that in the six months or so since the episode was recorded, a few interesting things have happened. The new website for the Society of Cultural Anthropology and its journal, Cultural Anthropology, went live this February 2019. In the course of the redesign of the site, Marcel and his colleagues at the SCA ended up opting for a customization of an existing web platform, rather than the fully custom site that they had had in the past. But holding with their commitment to take inclusive publishing seriously and considering the multiplicity of meanings of access, SCA contracted with the Boston-based consulting group Institute for Human-Centered Design to conduct a full human audit of the new site. And... Unlike much published online content, SCA's leadership has consistently included disability access in their messaging and announcements about what open access or inclusive publishing means for their infrastructure and platform. If you'd like to learn more about inclusive publishing, SCA and their online conference, or the Institute for Human-Centered Design, you can find links to all of this in the show notes for this episode. As always, Contra show notes include a full transcript of the podcast audio. Over and out. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Kevin Gotkin, Amy Hamrai, Cassandra Hartplay, Maggie Mang, Jara Mosh, and Leah Samples. Follow us on Twitter at Critical Design L and learn more about our projects at www.mapping-access.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.